if you're an entrepreneur and you have something that you really care about, right, that you're willing to put that much of your life into, it's probably got real value. And, you know, ultimately, that's what we really need to bring to the world is real value. The road of an entrepreneur is guaranteed to be askew, and there are always big questions to overcome. How are tech founders bootstrapping their way to the top while spending money from their own pockets? How do they scale a startup that is primed for a successful exit, yet still remain profitable? These are the types of questions that this podcast will help answer, and it will shine light onto the livelihood of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the dirt in between. My name is Jim Barnish, and welcome to The Dirt. All right. Our guest today on The Dirt is someone very special to me. Um, As a proud family man in the mountains of Virginia, he somehow manages to balance a very busy professional, personal, and spiritual wellness life quite well. He's an incredible background, founded in multiple PhDs and turned a serial entrepreneur. He came out of an eight-figure exit in his first company in 2020, and since then, he started several other business ventures, all centered around financial wellness, technology, and data. Most notably, his fintech startup has recently come out of stealth mode, and listeners today are going to get a really great first look into how this company is leveraging risk management and behavior design to enable anyone to understand, build, track, and manage their own personal portfolio across multiple asset classes. Yes, even crypto, especially crypto. (laughs) CEO and founder of RiskSmith, Richard Smith, welcome to The Dirt. Great to be here, Jim. Thanks for having me. You bet, you bet. So let's just get started. So Richard, you know, I gave my surface surface level intro um, of, you know, your intro. Beyond the surface, that was pretty, that was a lot. (laughs) Well, yeah. I, I I care about you, man. It's a it's a relationship intro. <laughs> yes, but, thank you. But you know, be, beyond beyond what I shared so far, can you go even deeper in the dirt? You know, who is Richard Smith, and why should anyone care? Uh, well, that's a tough one to answer, you know. <laughs> but uh, um, in the end, you know, it's I think it's uh, people need to know that you care about them before they care about you. So, but, you know, bottom line is I've always been somebody who's really tries to understand things, solve problems, like whatever's in front of me and, uh, and put in a lot of work. I started working when I was like 10 years old. I had a paper route and then I did some acting, child acting as a, as a uh, kid and then was, you know, working in grocery stores and ice cream parlors and, and, uh, and pretty much never stopped. So wherever I've been, I try to understand things, want to get at the truth. And uh, that led me all the way to the PhD level in academia. And then ultimately onto a path of entrepreneurship, which kind of surprised me that that's where I ended up. But I'm so glad that I did. Yeah. What was the, the real impetus of leaving the worldwide of uh, academia to found and fund your first company? It was really um, getting my PhD and concluding that academia didn't really have any answers for me. Hmm. 
that, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, the politics in academia are brutal because they're so uh, petty. <laughs> and uh, I had a great PhD advisor, uh, loved him, uh, learned a lot from him and had a wonderful time, but academia was not where I wanted to spend my life and my career. I really wanted to, to be, um, to kind of develop my own think tank, if you will, you know, my own team and my own think tank to, you know, try to solve some real world problems with some new technologies, but ultimately to really make an impact and ultimately, you know, change hearts and minds. Yeah. And I didn't think I was going to get to do that in academia. Have you gotten to do it as an entrepreneur? I think so. You know, I've touched, uh, I've reached a lot of people as an entrepreneur, many more than I expected, frankly. Um, and uh, a lot of what keeps me going as an entrepreneur is people telling me that my work has impacted them and meant a lot to them and is helping them. And so when I hear that, then, uh, you know, that's what gets me out of bed the next day to do it again. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I, uh, I had the unique pleasure of getting to know you as you were, you know, exiting the the first business that you ended up selling, and ultimately, um, you know, the the sale of it and the, the the strategic aspect of what you went through, and you know, there's a lot that goes into the human aspect of exiting beyond mm -hmm. just the great exit, right? Um, mm -hmm. You mind sharing with the audience what it was like exiting your first company? Uh, the word brutal comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> it was tough because it was my baby, right? I had built it for 15 years. Um, I really felt like it was my own, but I had actually given up majority control uh, about six or seven years before I ultimately ended up exiting. And towards the end, I just couldn't keep pushing in the directions that I wanted to go. And so I started to try to seek solutions to um, ultimately be able to continue to go in the direction that I felt was going to create the most value in the future, right? Um, and uh, ultimately, that ended up being exiting my own company that I founded. And that was tough. You know, there were customers, there were uh, staff, there were a lot of history and a lot of relationships there. Um, but ultimately, I really didn't feel like I could keep moving forward in that context. So I had to figure out a way to keep moving forward and do the things that I really felt were going to deliver the most value and have the most impact and what I really wanted to do. And that ultimately ended up meaning leaving my company, which was tough. It was heartbreaking. Yeah. It's like a divorce. <laughs> Everyone always thinks of exits as you know, this big dollar value on the other end of it and that it's just super easy to breeze past. But, um, you know, not, there's a no. lot, there's a lot of it. There's a no, lot that goes know, into the human aspect. One of the things that surprised me about being an entrepreneur is how creative it is. Right. And, um, you know, you sort of, especially if you went to Berkeley, you sort of get this contrast between the the artists and creative types and the business people, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I think entrepreneur is probably one of the most creative things I've ever done in my life, right? Probably by a long shot. I mean, look, uh, having a family is another one of them, 
but it just, you have to solve problems. You have to be creative. And it really is like something that you put your heart and soul into. And it is a, it is a work of art, right? It is um, literally art in the sense of artifice or artificial. It's something you create, you know, you're creating your own company and there's all kinds of relationships and, um, uh, you know, just soul <laughs> that went into it. So definitely uh, separating from the company that I had spent so long, um, you know, and put so much heart and soul into was, was uh, much more difficult than I had imagined. So, so rewind 15 plus years to the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. The origin entrepreneur story, if you will. And, you know, what would you do different now that you've had the chance to experience the exit and all that's come with it? I would be a lot more patient. I'm really convinced that, you know, if you are, if you're an entrepreneur and you have something that you really care about, right, that you're willing to put that much of your life into, it's probably got real value. And, you know, ultimately, that's what we really need to bring to the world is real value. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to um, chase gimmicks that look like real value, but aren't real value. And I think that real value comes from the heart and mind of the entrepreneur and the your willingness to you know, work for it. And I think that's very easy to lose sight of, especially early on, you know, in your entrepreneur career and something comes along, seems like a big opportunity and you know, you're like, oh yeah, that's going to be success. Um, and uh, I, at this point, I really wish that I understood organic growth a lot better, you know, than I did back then when I made some of my early choices as an entrepreneur. And today, as an entrepreneur, like that's the thing I'm committed to above all, right? I need to see that the team is coming together in an organic way. I need to see that the customers are doing something with the products that we're building and delivering and that they're getting value out of it and that they're telling their friends about it. You know, when you get that going, that's like real organic growth that you know you're delivering value to the world that people are um, getting something out of and are willing to you know, have an exchange of value for. So that's what I'm really after, you know, uh, uh, at this point in my entrepreneurial career. And that's what seems most important to me that uh, I wish I had understood that better 15 years ago. Yeah, you bring up these concepts of of creation and creativity and then, mm -hmm. and then value, right? Um, yeah. You're constantly doing both, creating a strategy, creating a team, creating a product, creating revenue streams, right? And yeah. creating an operational structure to, to, to build the business. And, you know, you, you obviously had this great exit and, and now... Um, you're doing a lot of really unique things um, around creation as well, for, as both an investor and in other companies and, and in your own. Um, yeah. You know, one thing I've heard you mention a few times is data is the new oil. And I know a lot of the things that you have been, you know, involved in have had a data element to them and in and, and a focus around self-surveillance data and things like that. Do you mind just mm -hmm. talking a little bit about what you mean when you say data is the new oil? Sure. Well, a lot of my view of the uh, the digital economy has grown out of my involvement in the financial markets for the past 20 years, and especially from the perspective of a retail 
investor. And over that 20 years, you know, what I witnessed and what I learned was um, kind of disappointing. It was disappointing to see how many people earnestly, you know, entered the financial markets in the hopes of growing their wealth, but only ended up losing money for the most part, or certainly underperforming, um, you know, what they could have done just by putting their money in an index fund, for mm -hmm. example, right? And so uh, I got this picture of this kind of digital economy, which is that's what the financial markets are. I think they're really in some ways the pioneers of the digital economy. So this picture became clear to me that, you know, something's going wrong in this digital economy, right? That in these digital financial markets, that people are being given a, you know, made a promise that's not being fulfilled. And I started to think like, how does this happen? You know, and it became clear to me that really that there are people that understand and institutions that understand a lot more about the markets than the average retail investor, right? Mm -hmm. Most of that has to do with the mathematics of risk, okay, which the public knows nothing about. And then most of the retail business models are, um, they make money by essentially monetizing our, our gambling instincts, our fear of missing out, you know, and, uh, and our behavioral biases, okay? So how does all that happen? You know, in part because there are certain um, participants in the markets who have much better data than we do. And we're really essentially giving our data away. Okay, quick story, Jim. Uh, one of the things that I did early on was I brought what was called a trailing stop loss, okay? to the web. I built the first website that offered trailing stop loss tracking for retail investors. And I launched that in 2005. Most brokers didn't even have trailing stops, um, let alone allow you to track them in the way that I did. And uh, I really brought this um, very important tool to the retail investing public. And it was the beginning of introducing risk management to the public, right? So meanwhile, that starts to build, people start to use it, and then along comes Robin Hood. And Robin Hood uh, starts to take trailing stop orders from their customers and sell them to the market makers, okay? So wholesale market makers like Citadel Securities, for example, would pay a premium to get these trailing stop orders from Robinhood. They're called non-marketable limit orders. And this is one of the ways that Robinhood was making a bunch of money was by essentially telling the kind of centralized market um, analysts who have all the data, all the big computers, et cetera, right? Much deeper pockets, you know, where the stops were for the retail investor, right? So that to me is... Um, something that's happening over and over again in our digital economy. For better or worse, it's set up a lot like a casino. Okay, and I don't mean that in like a pejorative way. I mean it in a technical way. Like it's using the same mathematics as casinos do, you know, to make sure that they're getting an edge and they have a margin and that that's repeatable at scale, et cetera, right? And meanwhile, the public is essentially playing with their cards face up in the casino, 
right? <laughs> We're giving all this data away. We have no idea what its value is. And um, the, you know, the, the governments and uh, corporations that are able to collect that data and get a picture of what's going on have a advantage that um, we're only just beginning to understand. So it sounds like a lot of the things from your first company um, have really been that, you know, an evolution since then, if you will, of, of where you've gotten to today, whether it's around data technology and just the way people manage investments, uh, retail yeah, investors. Well, it started like when I first started looking into trailing stops, I ultimately connected it to a couple of Nobel prizes in economics um, that uh, showed that we hate to lose, right? <laughs> and uh, the fact that we hate to lose makes us behave differently when we're losing than when we're winning. So when we're losing, the fact that we hate to lose makes us not want to sell because selling equals loss. But when we're winning, okay, the fact that we don't want to lose attaches itself to our profits. So it makes us want to sell because we don't want to lose our profits. So this is this Nobel Prize winning observation first by Daniel Kahneman, um, famous guy now, and then more recently, Richard Thaler, who was Daniel Kahneman's students, student. and. Uh, that was why trailing stops helped people because they would help people, you know, sell when they were losing and not sell when they were winning. Whereas the behavioral bias is to not sell when you're losing and sell when you're winning. Right. Hmm. And because the markets have momentum, right. Things that are going down tend to keep going down. Things that are going up tend to keep going up. It's better if you're doing something like a trailing stop where you're making sure that you're selling when you're, down and you're not selling when you're up. You're letting the market madness work in your favor. Okay. So that's just a classic illustration of what I learned about behavioral psychology, behavioral finance, and how risk design can really help to overcome the biases that are basically, you know, known by <laughs> the market makers, et cetera, the more savvy players, the hedge funds, you know, and who are just, you know, drawing us into those traps over and over again and uh, gladly taking our money while we think that, you know, confetti on a, on a Robin Hood screen is somehow going to make us a winner. No, that confetti is to make Robin Hood a winner, not you. <laughs> so that's how I really got more deeply interested in behavioral finance, behavioral economics, and in ultimately creating a new um, a new experience for retail investors that uses the same tools that the professionals wouldn't be caught dead without, okay? And uses those to help people do a better job of managing our own biases when we when it comes to investing. Look, we've got enough data, we've got enough technical indicators, we've got enough sources of ideas. That's not the problem. The final frontier, you know, for the public is good risk management, which ultimately means, you know, not succumbing to all of your crappy behaviors that, you know, nobody told you better, right? We weren't educated. We're pathetically, um, you know, financially illiterate in the United States for the amount of wealth that that is here. It's it's really a travesty. So. 
Um, you know, if you are a trader at a bank or in an institution, you've got a risk management department. You've got somebody looking over your shoulder saying, hey, don't do that. That's too risky. Hey, you know, you're in the hole. Don't keep trying to dig yourself out, <laughs> you know? So um, that really needs to be made accessible to the public. And that's what my new venture, RiskSmith, is focused on. How to create a user experience that lets the public access the same tools and you know, processes that professional investors wouldn't be caught dead without, right? And I think to really make that work, the key is the user experience. It's gotta be simple. It's gotta be like iPhone simple, right? Because we're not MBAs in finance, you know, we're not um, professional bankers, right? But so how can we, and I think this is possible today, Jim, you know, with as far as technology has come, as far as design has come, as far as data has come, it's possible to put these tools and these methodologies into a user experience that, that anybody can use at any time. And that's ultimately what I'm aspiring to do. All right. So let's, so let's go there. So this new startup, uh, yes. RiskSmith, right? Mm -hmm. uh, wealth tech startup, risk management, risk design, you know, all these really great terms that you're throwing out there, but let's, let's bring it down to, let's bring it down to action and, and how, you know, investors see the world today versus what RiskSmith will allow them to see. Um, you know, what are you able to share with our listeners and, um, you know, how would they go about using a tool like RiskSmith? Well, we're keeping it very simple. So right now we have three indicators. One is a histogram, which most people aren't familiar with, but it basically shows the pattern of how the returns happen on a daily basis. So you're up 2%, down 1%, up 3%, down minus 5%, and you put those into buckets, essentially, and you start to see a pattern of, is this a volatile stock? Is it a more normal stock? But it gives you an idea of what you're up against, right? Because mm -hmm. a big part of what happens to us and to, to all investors, but especially retail investors, because we're just not trained in this, right? Is that we get drawn into the markets with unrealistic expectations about you know, what lies ahead, right? So most of the marketing that goes on to retail investors is all about get rich quick, right? Or don't miss out on this, right? And oh, just put your money in this and you're going to be rich. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and as though it's just a one-way rocket ship, you know, to, uh, to, to wealth. And it's not that way at all, right? And, and we know it's not that way. These things are very predictable. You can see them visually, but they're not being shown to people. And why aren't they being shown to people? Because for the most part, if you knew this, then you, know, you wouldn't just keep throwing good money after bad, which unfortunately is what a lot of the retail financial services business models are monetizing. So seeing kind of what the patterns of the return distributions are is a big thing. Seeing the relationship between the rewards that you're earning versus the risk you're taking is another big thing. And then finally, seeing how all of your assets fit together to give you kind of a total picture of 
the rewards you're earning for the risks that you're taking, okay? So it's easier to see this visually, you know, than it is to talk about it because you start giving these somewhat mathematical terms like histogram and risk reward and, uh, and some people's eyes start glazing over or ears start glazing over on a podcast, right? But it really is when you can see it visually, it doesn't take that long to really start to get it. And then once you see it and you can start to look at the markets through this lens, right? You start to relax because you have a much better idea of what the market might throw at you, you know, over your target period of time, right? So I've said many times, you know, a lot of people are interested in Bitcoin, a lot of newcomers to the Bitcoin market, right? And, uh, you know, if you're in Bitcoin and you want to hold it for at least a year and you're not okay with Bitcoin falling 50% in that year, then you're going to be sorely disappointed, right? Like, I mean, there may be years where Bitcoin goes straight up and doesn't fall 50%, but that's like a minimum expectation of being invested in Bitcoin, that it's going to fall by at least 50% within a year that you hold it, right? So just within the past year, we've certainly seen that it hit 69,000 and it's down to 31,000. And people are asking me, you know, oh, should I sell my Bitcoin? I'm like, no, this was just, this is normal for Bitcoin, right? But people don't know that, right? Because you're brought in on a hallucination, really, that Bitcoin is this transformative thing that's going to overnight change the world and build a new internet. And there's only, you know, so many millions of them and there'll never be any more and get an hour, you know, you're going to miss out. So when you come in on that emotion and that expectation, you're setting, you're set up for failure. Right. And that's what a lot of people are going through right now. Right. Who were excited about GameStop and AMC and Bitcoin and Dogecoin and and Robinhood. Robinhood IPO to thirty eight dollars a share. It dropped below ten dollars a share in the last few weeks. Right. And Robinhood sold its IPO to its own customers who I keep reminding people Robinhood's users are not its customers. You know, its users are its product. And, uh, but that's the world we live in, right? So part of this is to give people some tools to start to see, you know, what's true and what's false (laughs) to at least have a little bit of, um, ability to go, okay, you know, I might be interested in a new altcoin. I might be interested in Dogecoin or Shiba Inu, but like, here's what it's going to take to hold that position. And that's very important, right? How do you, if you're going to be an investor, you know, there's two things. You want to take a position that you believe in and that you care about, and then you want to be able to survive. (laughs) You want to be able to hold that position, right? And I just see that so much of the underperformance is driven by people not having um, good expectations about what they're going to have to put up with in order to succeed kind of reminds me of being an entrepreneur actually <laughs> well it's it's expectations but it's also goals and strategies right like what i yeah. what i think is great and dynamic in the way that you guys have, have built you know what what you've built is you start with your goals um and and you start with helping create a strategy for the individual and that strategy connects back to what that individual is passionate about and and the causes that they have and 
it's not just, you know, one market that you get access to. It's a bunch of different right. asset classes, whether that's normal stocks yeah. or, or crypto or others, right? Right. Um, Absolutely. What what drove you down that that thesis point around multiple asset classes and, you know, building a portfolio in that manner and and displaying the user experience like you guys have over it? Because that is incredibly different than what's in the market today. A lot of it came from Ray Dalio. And he had this concept of holy grail portfolios, which Bridgewater Capital at the big hedge fund, that's you know one of the most successful hedge funds in the history of the world, doesn't actually seem to practice this philosophy <laughs> of uh, what Ray Dalio called the holy grail portfolio. But I think it's a great strategy for individual investors, which is 15 to 20 good, uncorrelated return streams, Okay. So you don't need 100 stocks. You don't need 200 stocks, right? 15 to 20, good, meaning they they got a good chance of succeeding and of actually paying you back, right? <laughs> and then uncorrelated. Most people have no idea what uncorrelated means, um, but it just means that they're not all going up and down at the same time together, right? Some may be going up while others are going down, Still, the net, they're all going up, but they're not all going up and down at the same time. And so when you have uncorrelated investments, you get a much smoother overall ride up if they're good and uncorrelated. And that is, you know, again, it's a calming effect. It's relaxing, right? To, you know, the, see the market thrashing around, but to see your portfolio, you know, not thrashing around as much as the market. Right. So I think that's a very powerful idea. I think it's a great model for individual investors. And it is a big part of why we design things the way that we did. Got it. And and how did how did those ideas and, and strategies and and really everything that, that's taken you from company number one through today? Mm-hmm. You know, how, how has that evolved and in, in connected, you know, and really just kind of evolved the thesis from, you know, entrepreneur day one to today? Again, it goes back to the idea that human behavior is kind of the last mile, you know, so um, and I really think that as the data economy continues to come online, as uh as DeFi um, continues to grow and we get micropayments, right? So right now, kind of the minimum exchange of value you can have online is about a dollar, let's say, right? Because it costs 30, 40 cents to do a transaction through a processing company, right? Um, But when we can get down to the level that you can have value exchange going on at fractions of a penny, right? You're going to have all kinds of exchanges online that aren't happening today, right? So we're going to have, I mean, you see exchanges, literally like crypto exchanges at the moment, NFT exchanges, OpenSea, et cetera, right? All of these exchanges are starting to explode. And so you really have kind of an explosion of the very, um, of what kinds of assets are available to people to invest in, right? And I think that's going to continue. So you're going to have this continuing growth of exchanges. Uh, you're going to have exchange, you know, value being able to exchange 
be exchanged in smaller and smaller increments, okay? And so all of this really creates an opportunity for anyone to track their wealth in a much more holistic way, okay? So, you know, you can get real estate data now online, right? Of course, you've got your banks and you've got your brokers, but you've got collectibles and now you've got NFTs and you can track all of those things in data, price time data now, and you can start to get a picture of how they fit together, you know, into the puzzle of your total wealth. Where I really would like to go with this, Jim, is to teach everybody to be your own bank. Okay. So banks have a portfolio of assets. They got some loans, they got some real estate, they got some businesses, right? They got some equities, investments, et cetera, bonds, and they have a total picture of their wealth. One of the tools we have in our app is called Value at Risk. It comes out of the banking industry. We don't call it that. We call it D-score because we don't want all that banking jargon. But um, being able to see you know, your wealth as um, a total picture and how much of that value is at risk on any given day that's something that, you know, banks, again, that's just table stakes for a bank. And I think increasingly, um, as decentralization does start to uh, go a little further than it has so far, which I really think is going to happen, that we're going to be able as individuals to start to view our wealth in a much more holistic way and to really start to see ourselves as in the same way that banks see themselves, right? So, be your own bank. Hmm. We're not there yet, but I do think that's where it's going. And a big part of that is because, you know, there's so much more ability to track data and have value exchange that there's going to be much more visibility about, you know, um, the prices of assets and how they change over time, et cetera. And you're going to be able to really start to see your wealth in a new way. Right. And I'm excited about that because, you know, a lot of businesses right now are trying to be the one-stop shop uh, for all things money, right? But I don't, you know, but they're, you know, you're still a bank or you're still a broker dealer or, um, you know, maybe you're a financial advisor, but that everything's too siloed right now. And so to be able to start to, you know, cut across all those silos and bring all those different sources of um, valuation together for an individual. That's ultimately where I see this going um, in the next five to 10 years. Well, that's terrific. And, and, you know, that's that, that whole idea of multiple asset classes, portfolio, that's the way people live, right? You've got, yeah, You've got homes, you've got cars, you've got NFTs, right. whatever whatever you might have invested in. There's, it's yeah. not simply stocks. It's, it's and there's no way to really have a holistic picture of that. Correct. Right. But increasingly, I think there is that data is coming online. There's more exchange going on. Right. There's more ability to price things, and so I think that we really can start to look at how the whole picture fits together. You know, it's frustrating to me that I can't do that for myself right now. And, you know, most entrepreneurs are really just trying to solve <laughs> our own problems, right? The things that we see that are missing that we want for ourselves. And, uh, and this is a big one for me. 
Yeah. So let's, you know, let's talk about that balance, uh, your your portfolio, your life portfolio, because I know you've got, you're engaged with, you know, a lot of things just beyond Smith, and mm-hmm. they all really tie to the same concepts and and level of education and thought leadership that you've been talking about, right? Um, around, you know, <clears throat> self-surveillance data and around building a better portfolio and, and really, you know, driving beyond what people typically do, which is around performance and you know, really into the understanding of what portfolio and risk management means, like making that sexy, if you will. Um, you know, you've really got a newsletter, about- you've got a lot of PR that you're doing, you've got, you know, a lot of social media, you're all over the place, man, you're doing some great things. And obviously, uh, RiskSmith is the focus, but you're also educating the public at the same time. You know, any, anything in particular, any any quick bullet points that, you know, you really want the audience to have as a takeaway around what they can do to get started? To get started as an entrepreneur or get started as an investor or get started living? (laughs) To get started, you know, beyond the, beyond the level of financial literacy that's out there for the average person, right? How do they leverage RiskSmith to just get started? Yeah. Well, we've started a community. So we've started a Discord community and people can join us there and they can hear what we're thinking about and they can learn a little bit about our app. So that's a good place to start. If you go to risksmith.com, I'm pretty sure there's an invitation. There's a link there to uh, learn about our Discord community. And I think the community part of it is really important to me, Jim, going back to the organic Hmm. um, growth side. Like, this really is a new way of seeing markets and seeing investing like in the RiskSmith app, there's no prices of stocks, right? I mean, what financial website have you gone to that you don't see just prices flashing at you, you know, <laughs> but prices create anxiety and they really don't tell you that much, actually. You know, one time my mom told me that uh, Dogecoin was cheap because it was 50 cents, a Dogecoin. And I said, mom, I guarantee you it's going to be cheaper. <laughs> you know, Dogecoin's not cheap. Like it's worth $75 billion, I think, if you added up all the Dogecoin in the world, right? And uh, it's not actually producing anything. So, you know, if you could spend $75 billion, would you buy all the Dogecoin in the world? Or would you maybe buy, you know, a business that's producing uh you know, income and dividends and is likely to do so for the next 25 years. You know, so we don't really think about, you know, the way that prices are presented as sort of being cheap because they're less than a dollar expensive because they're, you know, above a thousand dollars, right? Like that just, it's not the right way to think about markets. So we don't put that in our user experience. You know, we want to give people a new way of seeing the markets. And so it does take a little time it does require a little bit of education. That's why we invest so much. And one, you know, I need people to one, buy into the worldview that I have, that they that risk design and risk management is important to them because right now the risk literate are picking the pockets of the risk illiterate. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, um, and then, uh, and also, you know, to be able to defend themselves against that, but then to be able to start to use these same tools to design a level of risk that's going to, that has a good chance of delivering rewards, right? But that still lets them sleep at night and works for where they're at in their life, you know? So much of 
our economy today is driven by what I call one size fits all, you know, um, services and solutions, right? Everybody should take this pill and everybody should, you know, get in an index fund. Everybody should watch this movie, whatever, right? So those are, you know, those are big economic opportunities when you can find one thing, you know, like a, like a COVID vaccine, for example, that is going to be used by millions and millions of people, right? But that's not how our financial life is, right? Everybody is different. We're all in different places. We're all different ages. We all have different amounts of money. We all have different talents. We all have different levels of education, right? So our financial lives are um, unique. And so to give people the tools to start to design a level of risk. And we don't take risk just for the sake of taking risk. We take risk because we want to earn reward, right? <laughs> um, that's what I really think uh, we're beginning to do for people. And it's early, right? But I'm very encouraged by what I see because I see people getting in there. Um, I see people starting to play around with it, move pieces around in a way that they've never been able to do before and start thinking about investing in a totally different way. You know, even to think about how two investments fit together might work together to create one better investment, mm. you know, is something that's new to most people. Okay. Because, you know, again, we're just getting sold the one thing that's going to solve all your problems, right? Dogecoin or, you know, GameStop or Berkshire Hathaway or whatever the, you know, one thing du jour is. No, you know, it's not one thing. Try to get 10, 15, 20 things that you really believe in that uh, somebody else smarter than you also believes in, <laughs> right? And, um, and that work well together as a team, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's what I see people starting to do with our, um, with our app. And that's where, you know, we're really investing in um, expanding on that user experience and making it, you know, as easy as the iPhone to be a great investor. Oh, cool. So, so, you know, balanced company, balanced portfolio, Let's talk about the balanced entrepreneur, right? Like, how do you do it all? You, you're a busy guy. You're a thought leader in the space. You're giving people education. You're here today. You're running company, right? You chair a nonprofit. How do you keep it all straight? I try not to think about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I only do things that I love doing. Mm. So it's all fun to me. You know, I'm doing what I love and uh, I make sure that I work with good people and I am patient, right? I'm not looking for things to transform overnight. You know, I really, I believe in the things that I'm doing. I think they're all important. I think they all tie together, even though looking at them separately. It's like, what are you doing all this for? But to me, they all tie together. Hmm. Um, and I just would not want to do them, you know? So uh, as long as something good is happening every day, you know, sometimes I do wonder 
if it's, you know, how wise it is to try to be juggling so many balls, but it's kind of the way that I've always done it. And, um, uh, and I'm happy with the progress that's being made and the way that people are coming together and the value that's being created across all of them. So other than that, you know, I just don't think about it that much. Maybe that's one of the things I learned from being a, uh, a bit of a child actor and going out on auditions, you know, and you're like 12 and got to go stand in front of a group of adults and, and perform. Um, and at a certain point I just learned, well, you know, I'm, I'm not likely to die after, you know, from this. Right. So <laughs> let's just go in and do it. <laughs> and, uh, and if you just go in and do it, you know, just showing up and doing it. Sometimes you win. Yeah. Well, and, and the balance that I've seen in you the last few years is um, definitely commendable the way, not just all the activities and the, you know, um, organizations that you're involved in the way you give back, but the way you make time to spend, spend time with your family and in and, and your spiritual life and, and just become a balanced individual. And I think, you know, so many founders can really take and heed good advice around that. Um, and um, just are, you know, throwing themselves in their company, 100 hours, you know, 100 hours a week plus and not not looking backwards, not looking up, um, not looking forwards. <laughs> um, have you always been that good at balancing or, you know, any other techniques that you might be able to share with the audience? Oh, look, I'm a little older than, you know, I was back when I was an first starting as an entrepreneur 15 or 20 years ago. Right. So I think I've learned more about work-life balance over the years. Um, so, and I think that's part of the trade-off, you know, that we have from when we're younger, when we're a little more further down the road, right? Sometimes you can put in those hundred hour weeks, you know, when you don't have uh, a family, et cetera, right? So certainly that's what I was doing when I was in college and working jobs, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I do think that work-life balance is important. And I think, Jim, you know, one of the things, one of the unifying threads that uh, throughout everything I'm doing is really, um, I mean, you use the word spiritual and I'll go with that. <laughs> but uh, I think that we really need to be um, going deeper into, into our spiritual lives reconnecting with our religious traditions. I think that things have gotten very uprooted and, um, and very disorienting. And, you know, I, this is partly going back to why did you become an entrepreneur versus staying in academia? Like I went into academia in search of the truth and I didn't find it there. Right. Um, I found some good stuff there, but I did not find anything that um, that really helped me like be a better person, be a better husband, be a better father. Um, and uh, I learned some good ideas and I uh, advanced my professional life and certainly explored some interesting things. But I really feel like there is a bit of a spiritual awakening that's going on today for a lot of people realizing that, you know, life on these devices and these screens 
um, binge watching this or that, uh, or, you know, playing games or even watching sporting events, you know, and, um, the celebrity worship is just, people are realizing that it's, it's, uh, it only gets you so far, you know? So, um, I've been surprised at kind of reconnecting with my own religious roots and, uh, and have found it to be a big, big part of what's helped me to be a more balanced entrepreneur to make sure that I'm spending time on things that, you know, aren't business, (laughs) aren't technology, um, paying attention to, uh, you know, the, the inner qualities that ultimately enable us to be great leaders, right? doesn't happen just because you have another zero on your bank account. Hmm. And you can see a lot of those values um, displayed in both your company and also in the product, right? Comparison coming full circle, Robinhood, and in the, for instance, and in the people push notifications. That you, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. And in the people that you attract around you. Right. That's a, yes. big, that's a big deal. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. That's a big deal. And one of the most important, I mean, maybe the most important thing, right? Yeah. And you've got a hell, hell of a team. Hell of yeah, a team. I, I love it. I love working with the team. And uh, it's definitely been the most fun I've had as an entrepreneur. On, on that element of building a great team and, you know, the struggles in, in you, an entrepreneur goes through and finding the right people to augment them and, and, again, building a great team, surrounding yourself with the right talent. Any lessons, um, you know, as we as we get down in the dirt today that around, you know, working through those obstacles, you know, adversity around team dynamics, anything, anything that you can share? Um, well, uh, one thing that, you know, you helped me with is really valuing the people, you know, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're sort of like holding on to things. You're like, Oh, do I get, how much do I give here? How much do I hold back? Right. And, um, so, you know, one of the tools you have as an entrepreneur is equity in your own business. Right. And, uh, and for the right people, who you have proven themselves to you, right? Not just anyone, but got to make sure it's the right person. Um, it's really uh, wise, I think, to make a commitment to the right people so that they really stay with you. And especially in today's job market, right? There's a lot of competition. Um, so to have, one, to have a, a mission that people believe in, that's a big deal, right? Right. And to be able to articulate that, um, because people do want to do meaningful work, right? They don't just want to do anything. They want to do meaningful work. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, to make sure that those people that you do really believe in and that have proven themselves to you uh, have real skin in the game, um, uh, I think that's key. Yeah, there you have it, folks. Value, value your people. <laughs> and value show. your people that's right all right so uh this time in the show we do um what's called the founder five right rapid fire a series of five questions in under a minute that um Oof. ultimately get at you know some things growth and some things richard smith so okay well like, you ready <laughs> let's go all right so number one top one to three metrics or measures that you're relentlessly focused on 
I struggle with this one, Jim. I know I'm going to use up a minute here, but uh, I don't like most of the metrics out there. And I know that any metric can be misleading, but I actually want to create some new metrics. One that I'm excited about is time in the app for the right reasons, of course. You know, So when I see people spending time in my app, not because I'm tricking them into doing something, but because they're really doing something for the first time that they're enjoying, that is really encouraging to me. And we have like five and a half minutes of daily time in the app right now. That's really telling me something. So, and then I also want to, I want risk efficiency to become a new metric that investors are thinking about. That's terrific. In comparison with, with Robinhood that sends you push notifications every second, trying to get you in the app. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. Number two, top tip for growth stage founders, just like yourself. Patience, Hmm. be patient and don't (laughs) compromise. All right. Number three, favorite book or podcast that's helped you grow? That, you see all the books here? (laughs) (laughs) That's a tough one, but uh, I did uh, get a lot out of Peter Thiel's Zero to One. Hmm. And in particular, his, there's a, he tells a little story in there about, um, when they first started PayPal and uh, you know, they created what they thought was a really exciting, you know, app that let you transfer money just by touching two Android phones together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could see that as something that I would get excited about and think that would be the next big thing. It was a total flop, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so maybe later on down the road, it became something useful, but it wasn't the right place to start. What he really convinced me of was you need, you know, a, an obsessive niche audience who really needs your product that you can really dominate that niche. And that's what I am after today. Don't try to solve everybody's problems right out of the gate. Find a strong niche that you can really um, create value for and get traction with that niche. Riches are in the niches. (laughs) All right. right. All right, I heard that one four. before. <laughs> Here's a fun <clears throat> one. What actor would play you in a movie? Hmm. Uh, well, do I count playing myself? <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe Toby Maguire. Cool. Cool. He's, he's got a kind of boyishness to him that I think I share. Yeah, and a and a braveness as well. Hmm. All right. I'll take it. <laughs> All right. Number five, what is going to be the title of your autobiography? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, that's a tough one. Let's see. I might have to get back to you on that one. All right. We'll leave it in the notes. That's for sure. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So, you know, just to close us off, you've given so much to our listeners today, Richard, and, you know, time for a little bit of self-promotion, if you will, for how others might be able to help you and how those listening might be able to help you and the Rismith team be successful and, and grow the hell out of this thing. Fantastic. Well, uh, risksmith.com. Please go learn about us, get on our wait list or join our discord. I guarantee you, you won't be disappointed. I do a lot of big picture uh, thinking and storytelling, Jim, over at drrichardsmith.com. And it ultimately explains a lot of the things that are motivating me to grow Risk Smith and where I think we're going long term. 
And we're going to be doing a uh, capital raise here, probably closing around the beginning of the second quarter. So any investors out there who might want to get involved or learn more, I'd love to hear from them. Awesome. All right. Well, on that note, Richard, just closing us, how can listeners get in touch with you outside of the riskmith.com? Is it LinkedIn good? Any certain socials best for you? Um, LinkedIn is fine. Uh, you can email me to hello at drrichardsmith.com. There it is. Hello. <laughs> All right. Hello. Thank you. Thank you, Richard right, Smith, for Thank joining you. us on the dirt. Thanks for digging with me, Jim. <laughs> you bet. You bet. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.